0: Welcome to Groundcover. This is Lorraine Gordon from the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance at Southern Cross University. Today we interview livestock producer Tim Wright from Armadale in the Northern Tablelands, born of another pioneering family of the New England. Tim bucked the traditional farming approach of his ancestors to go where many were not brave enough to go. A holistic farmer in the true sense who questioned traditional practices ventured into regenerating landscapes with gusto. Declining terms of trade were a turning point for Tim, the catalyst for change. Inspired by Stan Parsons and Alan Savory methods of South Africa, Tim talks about principles and practices of holistic management, the human aspects of farming systems and the five landscape functions and their relevance to farming. Tim walks the talk when it comes to holistic farming practices and his resilience along this journey
1: is a credit to him. We welcome Tim to our podcast series. Welcome to Ground Cover with your host, Kerry Cochran, proudly brought to you by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and Southern Cross University. This is a show for farmers by farmers, a uniquely Australian podcast series exploring real life stories of land managers who have undertaken the transition from conventional farming to regenerative agriculture. Each week, we'll share a unique and honest conversation about the challenges and opportunities of regenerative agriculture so you can make informed decisions about how to best manage your land.
2: Today, on the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast, we hear from Tim Wright from Armidale, New South Wales. The Wright family are pioneers of many initiatives in the New England region of New South Wales and I make particular reference to Tim's grandfather and father, both of whom played a critical role in the development of the University of New England at Armidale. Tim's contribution has emerged in a different but significant way. He has radically transformed the productivity on his family farm named Lana and in this interview you'll hear how he went about doing so. So welcome Tim. Tim. And I wonder if we might start with you painting a picture of your farm in terms of its location, its size, the climate, and so on.
3: Thank you, Kerry. Well, our property, Lana, is located on uh, coarse granite soil on the western side of Urella. It was regarded as sort of the pits area of, of soil type and topography, except for the trees. It was well watered and well treed. And it was bought by my grandfather and my father at the time after the Korean War. It was basically uh, two paddocks, and sheep were there de- dying because of worm problems. Very low fertility. Yeah, and it's, it's been a transition phase. Superphosphate was introduced aerially by my father using Tiger Moss back in the early 60s. That had a, an impact to start with on the country because no one knew sort of much more about how to improve pastures, and the idea was to sow pastures and do that sort of thing, uh, ploughed up and whatever. He used the yeoman's concept, chisel ploughing, because he was conscious of erosion, put in a lot of diversion banks and things like that, which are still of use now. And all those things were were tools which um, in those days were regarded as being the right tools because no one knew any any different, basically. Yeah, so I have sort of came onto the scene in, in uh, 1980, 81, and the drought hit. I'd been through uh, Orange Ag College and uh, greatly appreciated the knowledge I got there. And my father always said, son, just uh, question what you're doing, look outside the square, and I guess that's what I've been doing ever since. And so I questioned the 1980 drought because I learned how to make hay and silage and do all those things, but it really wasn't solving the problem in, in as far as uh, costs of production go and droughts. So, so now we, our enterprise is mixed uh, sheep and cattle, crossbred cattle, self-replacing herd, and the sheep is on the same basis, uh, superfine wool in the 16.5 micron category, SRS-type sheep, easy care, we don't mules, we, we, we produce our stock ethically and ecologically. That's a marketing tool which I think all, most farmers should be starting to think about now. So that's sort of a, a rough guide of, of where, where we're at. It's been a journey of learning ever since I left Orange, I think, left, left the college, and it, it never stops.
2: So, in terms of the inspiration behind all that, was there a moment, you know, you're walking across the paddock one day and all of a sudden you you thought about what you need to do?
3: It was more about sitting in the office, Kerry. It was about doing the sums. You know, the economics wasn't stacking up. The property was okay. The 1982 drought took at least five years to recover financially and ecologically. We bared the land. And that's something I learned you never do. You should never do. Keep the ground cover. So I fed, but I didn't destock probably enough, quickly enough, like a lot of people. Yeah, so it was it was really our declining terms of trade. That's what I would say is that was the 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 key turning point for me. I could see that we weren't getting anywhere faster, you know, we weren't sort of moving ahead and sowing pastures and the odd little oak crop and that sort of thing. We weren't getting, the returns weren't there for what we were getting and that was a catalyst for change.
2: In terms of another catalyst, did you get inspiration from people who had travelled this way already or people who were spruking from the the pulpit about different ways of doing things?
3: Yeah, yeah, I was always looking for that. At the time, uh, Alan Savory, who was still writing his book, Holistic Management, he hadn't been into Australia, but a partner of his uh, Stan Parsons was came to Australia in the early 80s and he ran this course called ranching for profit they did work together in Zimbabwe when before they went to America but that was their inspiration i guess it was Stan Parsons who inspired me because he he basically said that 60 to 70% of our indirect cost of production are land and labor related and there, that's the area we've got to focus on, you know. He said you can reduce those right back to nearly zero if you wanted to. And he said all you need is a wheelbarrow. He drew these analogies, very simple, simplistic way of getting the message across. And what he meant by the wheelbarrow was that we had we too too much capital investment in tractors and equipment, you know, as in silage gear and haymaking and all this stuff. And so I thought, well, that's that all makes sense to me. That's where I'm heading, and so I, I then went on and I did a course with Stan Parsons, up at Yapoon. I flew all the way up there. I was the only one from Northern New South Wales at the time, and I was basically on my own when after I returned because I knew that I was this was the answer, but I hadn't got the full picture because Alan Savory hadn't finished his book, and what was really missing at the time was the social part. The the decision-making tools that we that now I now use, the goal setting, the the value, you know, getting your values right and your where you want to be farming, and all those are very important aspects to to farming. So, so it took a few years and um, trial and error, and I employed the through Landcare funding, the Botany Department at UNE at Armidale were happy to do a research work because at that time the scientists around and everyone was saying, well, where's the science? Where's the proof? And, you know, I say to them, well, where was the proof when the Wright brothers built their aeroplane? There was no proof. There was no science, but they did it. And so I was in the same box as them and and I had to prove and I wanted to do this anyway because I know that research is very important. So we did this um, research data, research program, went over three or four years in the um, mid-90s. And it proved quite strongly that there was big changes, ecological changes in the pastures. Yeah, so we went from there.
2: To what extent did you come to realise the potential of five landscape functions? And I wonder if we might run through each of these and if you could provide a story, uh, an anecdote about each of these in terms of your farm. So let's start with number one, which is regenerating the solar energy function.
3: I refer to these, There's four main foundation blocks. The solar function is is basically getting as much sunlight energy as possible to, for green leaf, for photosynthesis to occur. And uh, most of our land, when we did the research, um, I was rather shocked when the two research ladies who did it, who, one of them, which was Dr. Christine Jones, who some of us would know, and Judy Earle, who, are, who is now an educator, but they came up with a with this figure that uh, we, we were only utilising about 30% of our land. In other words, so we were overgrazed and underutilised and so that underutilised land wasn't capturing enough enough sunlight for photosynthesis and that was because of the of their grazing management program. We, we didn't have enough animals in a paddock at a certain time so they were creating sheep camps, living on those sheep camps and, and uh, leaving a lot of the the lower country, less grazed. And so that was the main area for, on that one was to make maximum use of sunlight energy.
2: So it's a simple formula, really. You just to increase the amount of plant material on your farm by grazing yeah, management.
3: Yeah. Mm. That's right. But more, but more about green leaf and, and, and less oxidised mm-hmm. uh, material. Mm-hmm. And, and so that doesn't happen unless you do all these other things such as smaller paddocks, high-density stocking. You've got to move moving the stock on. The other thing which I didn't realise was that our livestock are our tools. I saw them more as a, back then as a time, you know, we get their money, you know, we make money from them and that's it. But no, they are a very important part of the, of the landscape. That's an important point which I think the, the green element should think about because livestock are very important. It's just the problem is it's not the animal, it's the problem, it's us. Yeah. It's the way we manage them.
2: So you, you see yourself now as a landscape manager, in a sense.
3: Yes, very much an ecological, ecological manager.
2: So yes. let's go to number two, which is water—the water cycle.
3: Yeah, well, the water cycle is obviously at the moment it's it's critical, and it 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 has largely it's a function of, of organic matter, really, which is carbon, and. The more organic matter we can lay down, the, more, the higher the carbon level and the, the greater the um, uh, retention of water in, in the soil. It's frustrating to me when we, talk, we hear of certain politicians talking about building new dams. Well, the biggest dam, the best dam we can ever build is underground, which is retention of water through organic matter. Through ground cover, and that's what a very good water cycle. If we have capped soil, as an encrusted soil, due to which is largely due to the raindrops. People think it's livestock, but not really. It's more to do with the raindrop, which hits the soil and creates this pan. If we get that, we've got a poor water cycle. The more air the soil, the the worse the water cycle. And so, at a time like now, where we're going, we're in one of the worst droughts in history. We are definitely in that worst drought in history. We have to be very conscious of, of that water cycle so that we, our grass, native plants in particular, which I always have, they they will respond to any sort of moisture that's so there. Five mils of rain and we get growth, even mm-hmm. even in midwinter, we will still get growth.
2: You, you mentioned your, the organic matter in your soil. Um, has that improved? Have you measured that at all?
3: Yes, it was measured back when uh, Christine and Judy did their early work. It's gone up about threefold. Again, we've got to bear in mind that we're in coarse granite soil that's been burnt and a high degree of leaching. It doesn't hold very little organic matter in it. And so we've gone probably half a percent organic matter up to close to five. And it's, and it's still there, even now, at the worst time of the drought, we, even though there's still patches of bare ground, but the soil is still moist.
2: That's an extraordinary amount of um, increase in organic matter, which brings us to a yes. third uh, characteristic, and that is the soil mineral cycle.
3: Yeah, t- highly linked to to that. And I think this is one thing which has never really been... The mineral cycle is is very closely linked to biology. Biologically thinking is what we weren't, we haven't been thinking about. Uh, back in the days, in my days at College and I'll, to do with that but that was just how we all taught and how we all learned but biology wasn't really taught properly in that at that time the importance of bacteria and fungi vitally important and this is where the chemical industry really got to wake up because it destroys a lot of it a lot of that biology and so organic matter is the big key to that again it's not just the water cycle it improves but it also vastly improves the mineral cycle. So we have a lot more minerals sitting there. In that experiment that was done, within three years, our, our phosphorus levels had doubled and we hadn't put any fertiliser on. And so that begged the question, Why? What? What? what's going on here? Why is that happening? And I questioned it myself. I thought, "Now it's a bit high. Calcium went up, magnesium, all, all the major elements went up. And I put it down to the two, two major things. And the first one is the organic matter because I was laying more, I was... Hitting it pretty hard with the uh, with cattle followed by sheep, always have leader follower, laying down a lot of manure, but a long rest period of up to three months in a good season so the, when I was putting stock in the average farmer would be taking them out. So we were, we were leaving at least two tonne to the hectare behind dry matter of litter. But the roots were going deeper. They were never given the chance in the earlier days because of the way we, we managed. And so the roots were tapping into that uh, mineral that's been leached down over thousands of years. And so now I th- I'm very confident, and it's a hard one to, it's a bit of pill to swallow, but to me, I feel that we can improve our land without superphosphate which is challenging for a lot of people. But we've got to use the animals and we've got to have a grazing plan to do it.
2: Of course, there's there's also the story about how the fungi uh, takes up phosphorus and delivers it to the plant, and yet when you add phosphorus as yeah. a fertiliser to the soil, it a- actually kills off the fungus. So you, you're really uh, destroying that yeah. which supplies the plant with phosphorus. Interesting story.
3: That's it. It is. And and so to me, um, you know, if I can swing the... Pendulum round, and my main reason for for doing this was to cut costs. Now the cost of superphosphate kept going up every year, and it's certainly three times what it is now than what when I first started. If I could do it through biological farming, why why would I bother going the other way?
2: Next item is almost what you're talking about already. That is uh, dynamic ecosystems. It's interesting for me, uh, I guess, to hear you talk about yourself as an ecological farmer or a, a farmer who is very focused on his ecology, and I think that's related to this particular yeah. topic.
3: Yeah, I, I guess that's in the family, uh, the ecological side to it. Um, My father was very uh, conscious. Of, he made the property a wildlife refuge back in the early 60s. My grandfather, was, who was, had a lot to do with the university, although they both did, he was to do with rural science, yeah, one of the main founders of that. And and he both very focused on, on trying to farm sustainably and you know, not, not like to use that word much these days, it's more regeneratively. The community dynamics is really the tool here, which one of the foundation blocks. And it, that involves your ants, your birds, your all the things, your spiders, and you, and what it's about reading the land. We have to learn how to read the land, and that's something which is very lacking. And I was blessed by the fact that my father had taught me how to do a lot of things. I've picked it up from Alan Savory on other factors and I'm now teaching, talking to other farmers on on how would they go out and say, well, have I got got a good water cycle? Have I got a good mineral cycle? What's my community of insect life like? And all that sort of thing. So ants are very important to the whole um, cobweb, you could call it, of communities out there. And so you've got to be conscious of what you're doing so superphosphate again, you know, is that affecting? It does. It helps it a little bit, but then later on, I question it. You know, what's it doing in terms of the community dynamics? We have a lot of uh, meat ants around at the moment. Mass. I've never seen so many meat ants nests, and I'd like to know why. You know, what's happening there? Is that an indicator of something b- bigger? Wolf spiders, all those sorts of things. They're a very important part of it, and bird life. And so we have to keep our trees so that we have hollows left in the trees to, for the birds to live and have riparian areas. We have uh, platypus in the creek and we have koala and echidna and uh, bell turtles, which are highly endangered at the moment. I did a study here and found a bell turtle that was over 100, nearly 100 years old. And that, to me, was great news because it means that our water, our water is actually clean. It's not damaged from upstream.
2: In terms of um, the the dynamic ecosystem, talking about biodiversity, but there's also the productivity component, which is the outcome of all this this is happening on your farm. And I was reading in the book about what you've done is you seem to increase your stocking rate by up to where you've got 300 paddocks now, I believe. And you're going to increase the number of paddocks again. From that?
3: Yes, yeah, so I, um, I could go another 10 or 15. You know, we could go further again, um, a lot further if I really wanted to. But basically, what it means is the more paddocks you have, the more flexible your program is. So I've divided that area of 310 paddocks into eight farmlets. I don't like the word cell because we're farm managers. We're not cell farmers, so to speak. And so I like to get away from that word, that thinking. And so I have eight farms and I can benchmark between those farms. And it's just a line on our map which varies. It doesn't have to stay the way, but it generally on a set program, yeah, and there's a, a minimum of 30, 35 paddocks to each farmlet. I set, a, I set a rest period of varying between 60 and 90 days on each, each area. And so it is, it's just a simple, simple calculation.
2: So um, the one set of stock uh, stay on the one farmlet?
3: Yeah, they they move. It is like a, a rotational grazing program, but it's not. It's actually planned. That's why I like the word plan rather than rotation. You're not locked into a set rotation. If I have an area that's where a sheep camp is and it's grown in a reasonable season, and it's growing going gambusters because of the nutrition that's there, because what I've done is fenced according to the contour, according to yeomans. And I fenced down on a parallel, so that the the sheep camp lower, lower and lower right down to the creek level. But the older sheep camps might have a excess of nutrients, so that that area grows a lot quicker, and so I might just take the stock into there and give it another grazing. you know you've got yeah. a very there's a variability factor and and the, you've got your lighter country which hasn't produced as well, and you've got to change that so you don't damage that land. Generally, I find if you go in, you hit it fairly hard to start with because there's a lot of rubbish, in a lot of dry grass, never been grazed so much once you've fenced it, and so you hit it hard and manure it up, have minerals. Uh, I use Himalayan salt as a mineral supplement to make sure the diet is balanced there, and then, then you rest it for a long, maybe six months. That's the sowing technique. That's my my way of sowing a pasture. Very simple Mm. and doesn't cost me much at all.
2: In terms of um, all that's happening, uh, could you translate that into productivity then in terms of increased productivity?
3: Yeah, well, the productivity, I guess you've got to look at it in terms of the the decision-making process, which has got to be socially, economically and environmentally. All those, those three areas is productivity the economic one is the one which sort of started me to start with you know with changing my way of doing it because of the as i said before the the declining terms of trade and so we've halved our we used to have 12% just as a simple way to look at it in our wool it's very good wool growing country but we used to have up to 12% vm vegetable matter in our wool in, a, in the skirting line and, and maybe three four percent in the fleece line after skirting it all out these days I would say I'd say in the last sort of 15 20 years our average wool clip our vegetable matter has dropped to less than three percent in the skirting line probably two and and less than one percent in the fleece line and that in economic terms you know that makes a huge difference in terms of yield the other thing of course is the increase in the through the biological change in the soil, we've doubled our current capacity, literally. Mm. Literally doubled it. Although right at the moment, because of the drought, I have a different philosophy there because it's one thing which uh, Stan told me one day and he was reluctant to, but uh, the question was asked, do you feed in a drought? And he gave a very sheepishly, no, never feed. He said, because who can tell you when the drought's going to end? And so I stick to that. And so I have this, what I call a mental allergy to hay, and, hay and grain, <laughs> and it's the best allergy you can have. I can tell you, because I know now that uh, after hearing the long-range forecasts, what where we're heading, we're still only halfway there. If I'd been feeding now, I'd be in big trouble. So there's all those aspects to it, and the hay shed is out in the paddock. It's not there. I pulled my hay sheds down. I didn't need them. So. The hay shed is in the paddock, and when that hay shed gets less, then you adjust your stocking rate to suit your carrying capacity. Basic principle, and that's what I do. All those are all part of the production side. the The big area this is really paying off, and you know you see it in the people who are when they come together in a uh, in a workshop. Is the excitement, the warmth, the you know? There's no doom and gloom. It's all very positive thinking. And so the social aspect, and that's why I come back to that, the decision-making, the social aspect of farming is probably the, the most neglected. And if you can have a grazing plan and you can see your way forward and make decisions ahead of the, of the game, you will sleep a lot better and mm. you'll live a, lot, a much better life and your health will be better. Big factor terms of productivity and, and i'll say another one as well the flow and effect because we're not using chemical we only use, drench our sheep uh, minimum of twice a year most people on the northern tablelands drench every month and some don't even have sheep because they've got a resistance problem yeah. we broke the cycle we don't need to have that problem anymore you've got a chemical aspect don't spray for thistles like we used to, there's no 24D flying around, and or anything, or Roundup, all those sorts of things we don't use, and so yeah, that's how we reduced our cost of production. The real winner was that when Stan Parsons mentioned that we could reduce our indirect costs of production by 60 to 70 percent, well, I can quite confidently say now that we are, we have reduced our indirect cost of production by that amount.
2: Look, you got onto a very interesting area, which is uh, Fifth Landscape Function, which is about the human. And I can hear yeah. the excitement in in your voice and about what you've done and where you are. And I'm just wondering about the regenerative movement, about education, about why it is that more farmers are not doing what you're doing and why we aren't thinking more about regenerative farming.
3: Yeah, yeah. well, um, it's... It- <laughs> It's one. Of the, I'll go back to a comment that Alan said. He said to me one day I was doing a workshop with him, and he said, "Tim, it's going to take at least twenty years for farmers to change." And I've been battling with this one, the adoption thing. And I do odd workshops, and people come to visit on field days at our property, and um, and and only probably maybe two percent would would actually actually take it on and do it. There's a lot of interest. Everyone thinks it's great, but they say, "Oh, we can't do that." Everyone can do it, but what? Of course, um, if they really want to, I think actually the female mind is a lot is a lot smarter on this one, and uh, the wives who attend they they're very they want to do it. A lot of them really want to change. It, it's on the move now, and it's not just with Charlie's book. It's something that's been happening for a number of years because we've kept at it. I was the sort of the fish out of the water basically when I started, and I was seen as the village idiot and whatever. But now it's quite the opposite. A lot of people can see the change and, and it just takes time. There's people who take the risk like I did and could have backfired maybe, but in this case it didn't. I was committed to doing this and I just learnt and it's been a great journey that I've been on and, it, and it's continuing and the movement now towards a the Regenerative Agricultural Alliance and the fact that um, hopefully Southern Cross University will go with the flow on this one, and start teaching regenerative agriculture in the tertiary level as a degree. And farmers will be linked to this. No doubt that people, regenerative ag farmers, such as Colcise and David Marsh and a few others around um, who've been on a similar pathway to me, will be able to help guide the future there.
2: The interesting thing, and I guess we're getting near the end of the the discussion, but this is a bottom up revolution, as as Charlie put it. It's not coming. It's not yeah. a top down coming from the university or the Department of Agriculture.
3: That's it's right. It's yeah.
2: coming from the bottom up.
3: Yeah, that, that's that's very true. That's the only way it can happen because it hasn't been working in you know in the past. I think one of the big problems we've faced is the uh, corporate world. I've been threatened by Monsanto in Parliament House in Canberra. Uh, when I won the Carbon Farmer of the Year award a few years ago. But that didn't phase me. I think we've got to stand up and uh, just sort of put it back to them and hit a middle stop and basically say, well, we don't need that stuff anyway. We don't need all this stuff. We can do it biologically. That was my answer. There's definitely a, a big change. Two workshops I ran recently in the Hunter Valley, and it was basically standing room only. And I was very surprised. Obviously, the droughts had a bit fair impact in there. People are wanting to look at different alternatives. But the big thing which I've found of benefit to me has been the decision-making process, which is part of, this is the social aspect to holistic management, which I wasn't picking up on to start with. I was just going ahead with the livestock and fencing and using stock density as tools. And yeah, we're just going to increase this and do that. But what was missing was my decision-making at the outset. And what I'm talking about here is the seven testing questions. Well, I'll just rattle three off. And the first one is cause and effect. When we do something, when we walk out the door to do something, which we do every day, we have to ask ourselves, are we treating the cause or are we treating the symptom? Nine times out of ten, we're treating the The symptom we're not looking at the cause and we don't want to look at the cause because it's too too expensive or whatever and so that helps us guide it and you think okay well what are we going to do about that is there a log jam in other words in the creek or whatever it is what's what's blocking this what's stopping it is it a lack of understanding a lack of knowledge and quite often it is and this is where the education comes in much needed another good one is where is the weak link in the chain a classic A little analogy, you pull a chain and it's got to break somewhere. So where is that weak link? And you look at it and you focus on it. Three simple little areas. There's marginal reactions, another one. Uh, The opportunity cost. Where can I get the best bang for my buck? Is poly pipe and wire going to give me a far greater return than hay and grain? And I say, yes, it is by a long shot because you're improving your farm at the same time, you're resting it and you're not going bankrupt feeding hay and grain, unless you're in a, a stud situation where you're locked in, but even then I'll be questioning it. So that's, that's a sort of a summary of how I view things and how I, what, makes, what sort of drives me to where I'm, where I'm at now.
2: Charlie makes the point in his story about you. He says, to the majority of traditional farmers, Wright may be operating in an upside-down world, but the difference is that he's enhancing landscape function and ecological resilience, not driving his landscape to ever lower energy levels and closer to the brink of disaster. He said that is, he was making his land, farm and family, more resilient to droughts and flooding rains, because he was fixing more solar energy, storing more and more water in the ground, growing more grass and and deeper and year-round roots and leaves, able to respond to the variable seasons, increasing the diversity of grass, legumes, shrubs, trees and other biodiverse ecosystem communities. This story truly is a remarkable regeneration of landscapes via a new agriculture. He got it right, didn't he?
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, he summed it up pretty well. Uh, very impressive words. <laughs> um, that, that, yeah, that's, that's where we're heading. Yeah, um, that's where I've been trying, aiming at. One of the things which uh, I use as, a, as an analogy a little bit is um, imagine a the trotting horse going round and round a ring, round and round the uh, podium, and they have blinkers on to keep them going around so they don't bolt and go over the edge. That's that's farming. We have the blinkers on, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, are we blinkered thinking? I say what pleases the eye does not always please the bank balance. So just because you've got a a nice improved so-called perennial pasture sitting there, is that economically viable? Is it? Environmentally vile, you know, we have to look at it. I question a lot of the things that we're doing, particularly in relation to European thinking. Like we live in a, a very dry, brittle environment. And Alan Savory talks about the brittleness scale between one and 10, where you've got the tropics of, you know, one to two on the coast and then you, the further west you go, the, the higher the scale number. And so the drier the environment, the more we have to be very open to change and adapt our enterprises to suit, et cetera, et cetera, which a lot of farmers do. But we are still farming European ways and I think the, we need to give recognition to the Aboriginal community. You know, they've been here for thousands of years and how they've adapted to, this, to these major drought cycles. I'm not saying we have to go right back to their day because we can't, but we can learn from different things that they do. And I think one of the one of the main ones, apart from the water cycle, is is the enterprises that we run. I do seriously question whether we should be having cotton out on the uh, from the Murray Darling Basin. And to me, livestock used to grow well there. Sheep did very well in that country, even though they have a battle at the moment because the ground's been ploughed up and it's virtually a dust bowl. But we look at the enterprise. We've got to match the enterprise to suit the environment rather than change the environment to suit the enterprise.
2: Tim, it's been a pleasure to hear your story today. So thanks for your time.
3: Thank you, Kerry.
1: Thanks for listening to Ground Cover. Hit subscribe now so you never miss an episode. And for further resources on this topic, head to scu.edu.au forward slash RAA. This podcast has been produced by the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance on behalf of Southern Cross University, a collaboration designed to build a more resilient agriculture industry in Australia.